This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, epidemiologist Professor Mary Louise McLaws joined me to discuss Victoria's plan to exit lockdown and open up. We also talk about the epidemiology of Victoria's current outbreak, our hospital capacity, long COVID and the push to reach high levels of vaccination coverage. The next interview you'll hear is with Greg Mullins. Greg is a long-serving volunteer firefighter and former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Commissioner. He joined me to discuss his new book, Firestorm, Battling Supercharged Natural Disasters. Greg discusses the dire effects of human-caused climate change on the bushfire season here in Australia and globally. He also shares his concerns over the policy and federal leadership vacuum on these issues. Then, finally, Melbourne-based bookseller and author Jacqueline Kruppi joined me to talk about her new book, Garden Like a Nonno, The Italian Art of Growing Your Own Food. My first guest, who I'm going to speak with right now because uh, she is so graciously and kindly joining us once again, uh, her name is Professor Mary Louise McLaws. She's an epidemiologist at the University of New South Wales, and she's also a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And anyone who listens to this program will be very familiar with Mary Louise because she's been with us during this pandemic at the worst times and some of the more optimistic times as well. And I felt that it was a really critical time in the pandemic to actually reconnect with Mary Louise uh, since our last short chat at Radiothon to talk about Victoria's plan to open up the state again to exit lockdown this Thursday at midnight and obviously to go to specific settings under the 70% of adults age 16 and over uh, double vaccinated types of restrictions and supposed quote-unquote freedoms, though I don't really like that terminology uh, very much because it kind of creates this black and white idea of either being restricted or having freedom. But I do want to now welcome Mary Louise to the program. Hi there, Mary Louise, and thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Good morning, Amy, and it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Well, I've got to say I was really excited um, to check in with you at this critical juncture because the last time we had a long conversation, uh, we were talking about vaccine targets and what we really needed to reach in order to get meaningful coverage um, and maybe potentially herd immunity through vaccination. Um, And you very kindly took us through the modelling that you had done yourself around uh, vaccinating of children, so those who are currently eligible, 12 and up, um, and also the adult population and how the terminology we're using at the moment of 70% and 80% are clearly tied to the 16 and up category. So it doesn't um, take into account the entire population. Um, And the whole point of that uh, was, of course, that children, there are many children who aren't eligible yet to be vaccinated and it's creating quite a lot of uh, concern in parents. So I wanted to start with that point and to check in with you about these 70 and 80% figures, given that uh, New South Wales has actually reached those targets and Australia, um, Victoria is not too far behind. What are your thoughts on how we are tracking uh, against those targets and whether those targets will still be enough? Well, 
first of all, I'd like to um, congratulate Australians for their uptake in the vaccine. And I never had a moment's doubt that Australia would take up the vaccine. Uh, what was a problem and continues to be a problem is uh, equity of access of the vaccine. So if you're regional, it's very difficult often to get enough vaccine. And so regional areas often aren't vaccine hesitant. They just um, haven't had uh, the amount of vaccine they, they may need. Now, in Victoria specifically, uh, you know that you've been in lockdown for a very long time. And also the under 40s couldn't get vaccinated until the last day of August. So they've really only had a month and a half. And yet the 16 to 39 years of age group that could get vaccinated or the, even the 12 to 39, they've only reached 48%. And that's because there was an extension between dose one and dose two. And that was done because there wasn't enough Pfizer. And instead of giving people their second shot in three weeks, they extended that to six weeks. Now, that was a reasonable thing to do to try to get everybody to have the first dose. But now there's enough um, uh, vaccine. The government in Victoria has responded very well to a suggestion I made publicly, although they may have been thinking about it independently without me, uh, that they should really get back to the three weeks between dose one and two, dose two so they can get the 12 to 39-year-olds vaccinated ASAP. And so that's going to help enormously. Um, so I've got no doubt that that group will get there. It's just that they've been underserviced um, because of the um, national rollout plan. Absolutely. And we have seen the fact that um, the lower vaccination rates in those that younger group, uh, obviously for the reasons you've outlined, uh, certainly a higher proportion of cases. When you're looking at um, the higher populations of vaccination, clearly the 70 plus are doing particularly well given that they had access much earlier. Um, and now have access to any vaccine that they would like. Uh, but also, given that they have such high vaccination rates, their infection rates are much lower. And clearly, as you've said all along, um, young mobile people who are out doing certain types of work and who are out in the community and who very much will be even more so as of Friday out and about in at least metropolitan Melbourne, um, you know, that is going to also lead to that population being exposed if they're not adequately covered by vaccination. So do you think it would be or, or should have been pertinent to wait, you know, three weeks, four weeks until the younger groups who've had to wait much longer could actually catch up to the rest of us? Well, that's what I would have done because I'm an epidemiologist. And if you have a look just in, I mean, even before Delta, the young were suffering an um, unprecedented amount of um, caseload. So the um, 20 to 39 years, because there were very few that were younger than that pre-Delta, oh gosh, carried about 40%, 41% of the caseload. Now that was high across any other age group. But since Delta, 
they've, um, of course, continued to carry that burden, but to a higher level. So the under 40s now in Victoria and New South Wales uh, both represent 68% of all caseload. That's enormous. Now, you don't need a fancy model to, to tell you the obvious. And the obvious is that's the group that acquire it and that's the group that need to be protected so that they don't acquire it and spread it inadvertently. And yet they were sadly um, a group that have been neglected by every um, a level of government. And so when you think about how they've only had six weeks uh, to get vaccinated, you have to be impressed that for the 16 to 39-year group um, in Victoria, 51% are now vaccinated fully. That's remarkable. And 28% of that age cohort have committed to their first dose. Now, that's around 79 80% have committed to the vaccine. And I'd ask them to think again for that group that are, you know, that 20, 21% that haven't thought about it, please uh, think about this. Uh, you need to protect yourself. The um, the, the 12 years um, at to 15, they haven't had nearly as long a time, but they're doing very well. So um, it's 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 finally um, they're catching up, but it's still not quite safe enough. Um, uh, so I, I, as an epidemiologist, I would have said let's open up when the group that are most at risk of, of acquiring it and the group that are most at risk of spreading it, mm, the the under forties, are vaccinated at eighty um, percent. When you do the herd immunity, basically the group need, the 12 to, to 39, need at least 90% coverage. And so 80% is the minimum. But sadly, um, the government has been often relying on models, which is unusual for outbreak management, um, and not the bleeding obvious, um, the epidemiology. Mm, absolutely. It does seem like common sense um, to to do that. And that's why it's been quite frustrating to watch these press conferences. Um, and obviously, it's great that we have vaccinated so many people so far and no one wants to detract from the great achievements that we have had. And obviously, also the major challenges uh, Melburnians have faced and regional Victorians um, in terms of being locked down for so long. So um, I think it's interesting when I watch this debate and you see, you know, ICU doctors and nurses and and other health professionals saying, you know, we're not um, saying we should be locked down forever. No one's saying we should be COVID zero forever. Clearly that's not happening in Victoria anyway. Um, but I think a lot of people have been concerned that the grey is not there and it's either we're being locked down or we're getting our freedoms back um, when we hit these arbitrary targets of 70 and 80% of the adult population, rather than having that level of nuance that you've outlined about certain age groups. Um, but even also certain postcodes, like you've pointed out with regional Victoria, um, I even noticed 
really interestingly, there are some pockets of metropolitan Melbourne even that are doing particularly poorly with vaccination. And surprisingly so, even um, postcodes like Carlton, which you would assume to be uh, doing very well because they've had a state vaccination hub in their neighbourhood since the very beginning, um, they have very, very low uh, levels compared to every other northern inner northern suburb uh, surrounding them, which you can find on the Coronavirus Victoria website. You can see vaccination by postcodes. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about these pockets, the geographical pockets, but also those demographic pockets that aren't covered yet. And I wonder what you think we can do apart from this, which is to educate people and, you know, call on them to get vaccinated. What What's something that, what can we do about this situation? And do we need to be, you know, once Friday comes and res some restrictions are eased, do we need to make sure that we're still taking enough precautions to reduce transmission? Look, I understand be, that um, to be a leader is making difficult decisions. Um, it's not kind of being an outbreak manager. So um, from an outbreak management perspective, you'd be saying uh, don't open up until 80% of the um, under 40s who can get vaccinated are vaccinated. Uh, but there are a lot of other push-pull factors um, that leaders have, including um, the, the mental health strains, the financial strains. I mean, I hope that when we do a review of lessons learned, that um, the government will understand that for those of us who can work from a computer at home, um, we need to acknowledge those that can't work from a computer at home under lockdown, and they need really a much better financial support, really, because... I think some of the demonstrations have been from frustration about the fact that they're not making ends meet. That's really horrible. So getting back to your question about um, how do you meet um, opening up um, the, the, the economy and, and slowly enjoying some release in, back into socialising, um, please wear your mask at all times when you're going into shopping malls and it, don't put it under your nose. You do breathe out particles outside your nose into the air and if that is internal air, they can hang in the air for quite some time and if somebody else is foolishly putting their mask under their nose, they can breathe it in, particularly if they haven't reached that full level of immune protection. Now, after you've had that second dose, you are protected, but not to the maximum until 14 days after your second dose. So none of the states or territories who are opening up, like you know, New South Wales, have actually said, well, instead of opening up on the Monday after we reach this, you know, 70 or 80 percent, it should actually be 14 days after the last group, uh, once they reach that, um, who've been double vaccinated. But then they're, they're not going to do that. So do it for yourself. If you've been vaccinated with that second dose recently, you, you aren't completely protected. So treat yourself um, with a great deal of care. Um, don't start socialising with your mask off 
even if you feel inclined to, because you could be putting yourself at risk. Absolutely. And I wanted to follow up on that because I've been thinking about this chat we had about masks and um, I've seen some discussion around the adequacy of surgical masks and fabric masks. Obviously, not everyone can afford to buy um, an N95 for every situation. It's something that's quite costly. But what do you think uh, in terms of the effectiveness of the masks we have available against the Delta variant at the moment? And do you think um, the science is still supporting the masks that we're currently using? Well, it's a nice question because at the World Health Organization, we had a meeting and presented um, some R&D for the, for the next um, um, uh, you know, uh, it, research um, needs. And one of them is to look at reusable masks because um, for healthcare workers, but also how safe um, uh, cloth masks are in the community. There's an assumption that they are that they do work well. There's very few cases where they've acquired it and been a real adherent to mask use. They usually acquire it from going to other people's households. and um, and so uh, there's been good evidence to show that uh, cloth does protect, but the better the cloth, the better the protection. And WHO says three layers, the outer layer being um, water resistant, the inner layer being um, a polyester, so you can rub it gently in your hands before you put it on, and that kind of um, develops a um, a, a field uh, so that it acts like a, um, a filter to repel uh, particles if they sneak through that first layer and then the final layer near your face is a s- much more silkier one to stop irritation and so um, I you know please wash your mask every day have two um, if you've got a cloth mask but the cloth masks the masks that we see that seal around the face that come from uh, Korea and other places that are not used in hospitals are great in the community as well you're not exposed to an enormous amount of particles as you would be in a hospital or an hospital ward. So um, keep that mask on, put it over the nose, particularly when you're going for a walk, because people chat and laugh. And if you've got your mask under your nose or your face, um, somebody might just breathe in uh, some particles if you're highly infectious and Delta on average um, increases the um, viral load by 1,200 times more than a non-Delta strain. It's huge. That's why it's so infectious. But um, I I haven't seen any worrying um, evidence that a cloth, triple-layer cloth mask is a problem in the community. Mm. Well, that's really awesome to know because I think, yeah, that information will certainly reassure a number of people and and if they aren't aware or haven't checked their mask, they can do that to see whether it, it's the best kind for them moving forward, given that we're all going to be using them indoors for quite some time. Um, Mary Louise, one thing I really wanted to ask you that has certainly um, been provoking me <laughs> a lot is this this um, language around normalising uh, COVID and that it will become endemic uh, these, this is the kind of terminology and language. And also, as we've discussed before, it's like the flu. Um, we've heard 
leaders say that the case numbers don't really matter anymore, um, that we won't really be focusing on them. Perhaps we may not even track them at some point. Um, and obviously it will be harder to have testing compliance when we open up and have large numbers of cases uh, like in the UK. But I, I wanted to ask about this question and this language about, well, cases won't matter. What is going to matter is hospitalizations and deaths um, and obviously the number of people in ICUs and we need to, to protect our healthcare system. Absolutely, that's true. But I wanted your view on that because, I mean, I certainly think that's probably a disingenuous thing to say is to say that cases and case numbers don't matter because of, of the obvious point that we've been talking about for nearly the entire pandemic, which is long COVID. Oh, I couldn't disagree with you. I am, am shocked at the idea that our government in New South Wales or uh, the federal government or any other government would think um, of not providing case numbers, uh, particularly if they start going up and particularly if we start getting variant of concern, in a pandemic that's probably the, the um, you know, equal to the pandemic of uh, AIDS, of HIV. And had anybody suggested that they weren't going to talk about HIV, um, would have been shocking at the time. And I am shocked because I, I know that with um, other respiratory infections, such as um, pooping cough, for example, um, TB is seasonal influenza. The um, local um, health authorities collect data and it's up on the web and you can get it and you can look at it. Now, this is a pandemic. This is a world wide pandemic. When we open up our borders to travellers and um, we're not even testing them on arrival, which I think is um, not not a good idea. I think that a rapid antigen test while you're waiting for your bags, and sometimes you wait a long time for those bags, you know, 15 minutes doing rapid antigen test um, could make the world of difference is very cost effective to decide whether or not you can go into the community without being um, quarantined. Um, but um, the idea of not providing us with the numbers that are potentially going to creep up or where they are is um, political because it's not epidemiological. If you have a health issue such as cancer or you're immune um, suppressed, you can then make a decision based on um, that, those data about where you may or may not go. But without that data, you, you may inadvertently travel to somewhere where uh, you may get infected. Um, you know, if you've had two doses of the vaccine and but you're still vulnerable medically, um, you may not want to wear a mask for, for the next couple of years. Um, and that sort of information would help them make a decision to, um, you know, uh, to, to make a, an active choice of not going into an area where, where there are um, clusters. So uh, I am just shocked and I think it's political and it's um, some sort of resource-based idea or it's political in 
thinking that if we don't see the numbers all the time, we'll just, in parentheses, or, you know, um, inverted commas rather, live with this. Mm -hmm. And yet we may actually see um, this virus mutate and people won't live with it. And I find it a very um, cavalier uh, expression to live with it when there are people in our community who will die from it. Absolutely. And even people who've had uh, their vaccinations and are immunocompromised, for example, um, they have been offered a third primary dose of vaccine uh, by ATAGI, which is the um, nation's vaccination advisory group. Uh, and that's just recently come out, that guidance. And, I mean, if you look at the list, and I won't read it out because it's an exceptionally long and very detailed, um, highly technical list, but even... Um, you know, you think about people who are on uh, high doses of prednisolone or other kind of steroids, um, you know, they're constantly suppressing their immune system. Um, it means that some of these people wouldn't have had an adequate response to the vaccine. Um, they won't really quite know in some cases whether they have or not. Mm. Um, and they, you know, are probably desperate to get a third dose because for them it may make the difference between living or dying. Um, but I think it's another point and one I wanted to talk to you about also was the fact that the pandemic isn't over and it's especially not over for those people because they're, you know, lockdown restrictions may lift for the vast majority of people, but the people who have chronic health conditions um, that predispose them to this will live under their own self-imposed restrictions for however long we have high levels of community cases. That's right. And uh, they need to know where these high levels of, if there are, or creeping up levels um, in the community. So I'm surprised that the government thinks that they can not do this as a community service so that people continue to live, not die um, from, from COVID. And even with a booster shot, um, there will be, um, it will give most people a really good uh, response. Um, but um, people who don't get a booster shot yet are at less risk of dying, but they are still at risk of um, acquiring it and spreading it, even silently or as a mild case, to somebody who may have chosen not to get a booster shot or who may have chosen not to be vaccinated at all. And they could be at risk of um, serious illness. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au on 3RRRFM with me, Amy Mullins. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program Greg Mullins, who is a former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Chief, and he's also still and currently is a volunteer firefighter for the New South Wales RFS. And he's written a new book called Firestorm, Battling Supercharged Natural Disasters. And I do highly recommend that you actually look at Greg Mullins's full bio because it is very extensive and it certainly gives you a huge um, understanding of his great depth of experience, which we will certainly draw out in this interview. Um, but I did want to highlight a couple of little 
um, moments in his wonderful and very um, distinguished career, and that is uh, that he formed in 2019 the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, which was and is a coalition of 34 former fire and emergency services chiefs from throughout Australia, so it's from across all states in Australia. Um, they sought to warn the federal government of the impending bushfire disaster in 2019, which so many of us uh, will vividly remember, as I'm sure Greg does, given that he fought fires in that uh, particular bushfire in New South Wales, and obviously uh, it affected several states um, in terms of bushfires. So I do um, want to welcome Greg now. Hi there, Greg Mullins, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Amy. Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. It is really great to finally get a chance to speak with you, and um, I really did admire you greatly uh, in 2019 when you and your colleagues formed that group, um, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, and really sought to, um, I guess, debunk or or kind of um, step into a debate area that is absolutely fraught, as you've pointed out, with politicking and uh, it's obviously highly ideological and it's certainly brought down a number of prime ministers over the years, and that is climate change and climate policy in Australia. And at this uh, press conference that you gave in mid-November 2019, you and your colleagues all uh, got together and a number of you spoke and gave really wonderful insights, but you also did respond to questions from the media um, and they were asking about, you know, your reaching out to the Prime Minister and reaching out to the government to try and preempt the bushfires that were to come. Um, Obviously, that season had already been um, an, an early season, which you outline in the book, but I just wanted to play a short clip from that press conference, uh, which will certainly jog people's memories, I think, and also provide an important context and backdrop to our conversation about your new book, Firestorm. So I'm just going to play this clip, which is your the voice you'll be hearing is Greg Mullins at this uh, press conference in November 2019 at a really critical juncture in this uh, public debate and discussion about climate change and its uh, role and relation to bushfires in Australia. If it's not time now to speak about climate change and what's driving these events, when this fire season is going to go for months, so do we just simply get gagged? Because I think that's what's happening. Some people want the debate gagged because they don't have any answers. And it's okay to say it's arsonists' fault or pretend that the Greenies are stopping uh, hazard reduction burning, which simply isn't true, but you're not allowed to talk about climate change. Well, we are because we know what's happening. Why do you think it's been so hard to get the government to talk about this? This government fundamentally doesn't like talking about climate change and that's all I'll say about that. We actually would like to go back to being retired and not have to speak out. We'd like the doors to be open to the current chiefs and allow them to utter the words climate change. They're not allowed to at the moment. We want a national summit where people are brought together. You need the insurance industry, you need farmers, you need the defence forces, you need fire services, of course, other interested groups. And we want a bipartisan approach. I, none of us can understand why climate change in Australia is so political. Um, in the UK, the Conservatives said years ago, Margaret Thatcher said this is a major problem. But in Australia, 
it's a major demarcation. We'd like to see Labor, the Coalition Government, the Greens, the crossbenchers all come together, declare a climate emergency and start to do something about the base cause, the burning of oil, coal and gas, the generation of CO2, methane and nitrous oxide, which is warming the planet and making our bushfires unfightable. Greg, are you saying that, if you're saying that the warnings were there for this current season, um, how early were the warnings there and when did you first try and warn the government? Look, I'm sure that the government was receiving warnings through their own agencies, um, but our concern as a group of former chiefs was we knew that it was very difficult for the current chiefs to get through the door to the highest levels of federal government. They could at state and territory level. For example, there's been a business case languishing in Canberra for the last two years calling on the federal government to increase funding for strategic aerial firefighting resources. In other words, those large firefighting aircraft. No answer. If there'd been an answer, there would be more of those aircraft in the sky as we speak. Um, so there was a 50-50 sharing arrangement from 2003. It's now nine to one. States and territories paying nine times what the federal government pays because the federal government hasn't updated their share since 2003. That has to be addressed. But fundamentally for the future, while addressing emergency service needs and making our, our community safer, there must be real action on climate change rather than emissions going up every year for the last five years. And so you just heard there a clip from Greg Mullins at his press conference with his colleagues from the uh, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action Group, which is a coalition of 34 former fire and emergency services chiefs that were formed and they've been based and worked in several states across Australia, states and territories. Uh, Greg, having been based in New South Wales, but certainly, as you'll soon find out from our conversation, has provided support in many different ways to other states who've battled uh, serious bushfires, including our own here in Victoria. So um, I welcome back uh, Greg Mullins. And um, first of all, Greg, I wanted to, uh, I guess, we will get to that press conference in a moment, but I, I did want to set the scene for this chat, which is going to be about um, climate change and bushfires. But you actually start this book with um, a story that I really, really enjoyed, um, not in a happy way, but in a, um, I guess I was moved and also affected when I read it, which was your experience growing up with your dad, um, who really sounds like an awesome guy. I wish I um, would have got to meet someone like your dad, who sounds wonderful and says the word bloody quite a lot. Um, and, you know, as you said, doesn't think it's a swear word, which I agree. It's not really a swear word, is it? <laughs> it no, be the great, great Australian adjective, he called it. <laughs> well, I, I agree with that. So feel free to add some bloodies if you need. Um, <laughs> but your dad, Jack, you know, it sounds like he was a, a great influence on you growing up. And I wondered if you could take us through that that moment when you first um, got ready to battle a bushfire with your dad. Yeah, well, look, both mum and dad, um, you know, everyone I think adores their parents, but um in the parent lottery, I, I I won first prize, so they were they were just incredible. Um, Mum's name was Pat. She was a school teacher and environmentalist, and we were just involved in so many different things. They were volunteer. They volunteered in every way possible. But um, you know, growing up, we knew about as little kids in the 1960s Indigenous land rights, how 
you know, we'd stolen the land off the original owners and everything. And other kids just didn't seem to know that. We knew where all the local carvings were, the caves with hand stencils, and mum knew a lot of the background. Dad was a real bushman. He understood the bush. Um, he'd fought in World War Two in the Air Force, um, <clears throat> been very poor during the Great Depression. His dad fought in Gallipoli and the Western Front in World War One, and... Um, came back, back pretty damaged. So, um, But, look, Valley is a public service. Dad ended up, um, he was a builder and ended up as running half of New South Wales for the New South Wales Department of Public Works. He built a lot of high schools and TAFE colleges. Um, but it was all about others. And I grew up in the bush and northern suburbs of Sydney, surrounded by National Park, and in summer you'd just see smoke in the bush and... Dad would go, no, we don't need to worry about that one. That's doing a good job. That one's doing a good job. Ooh, that one's in the wrong spot and it's been pretty dry there. We might go and have a look at that in a day or two. was a lot more laid back in those days, but he, he knew his fires. And um, I, I remember this first fire vividly, of course, and I've written about it in my book. That's how the book opens, my first big fire. It was October 1971. Um, all of the local fire trucks were, were around the other side of this fire, which had started the day before, and, and then it came into our, <clears throat> pardon me, our suburb. And my big brother's best friend was home alone with his teenage sister, and rang up, and Dad said, "Okay, jump in the car, mate. Off we go." And so I tell the story of that first big fire, and just I soaked it in as a kid because I'd. I was so fascinated with how fires worked, how, what the weather did, how fires go quicker up a steep slope, fuel levels, um, spot fires, and it all came together. And it was pretty terrifying, but it was fascinating too. And so the next year when I was 13, um, I found a local bushfire brigade who, as my brother Terry said, are desperate and will take anyone, even you. <laughs> So I became a, a volunteer. Dad was in the local brigade, Terry Hills, but I had to be 16 to join there. So I uh, had to wait a few years before I was directly fighting fires with Dad. I mean, 13 does seem like a pretty early age to sign up as a volunteer firefighter in the scheme of things. I mean, it, was that a common thing at the time to see people your age doing this or was that something that you were a bit of an outlier? Oh, look, there are a few of us and it, in this particular brigade, and it's actually the same brigade, Duffy's Forest, where um, the former commissioner of, of New South Wales Rural Fire Service, Shane Fitzsimmons, he, I think he was might have been 15 or 16 when he joined, years after I'd left. But, but I knew Shane. Um, we, we were both locals and I knew Shane's dad. I fought fires with his dad. Um, so, look, it was... There weren't a lot of people. So if the, the old saying was, if you're big enough and ugly enough um, <laughs> to swing a McLeod tool or carry a knapsack, then we want you on the back of the truck. And um, as I said, I loved being out in the bush. That That's my happy place in the bush. And um, I, I was learning all the time about how the different elements come together you know, every year there were bushfires, but most years they weren't too bad. It was only about once a decade that you got the confluence of um, 
climate systems like El Nino, um, which we didn't understand back in those days in the 60s and 70s, but um, hot weather, dry winds, etc. And then you had problems, but it was um, it was very predictable. Yeah, and it does remind me later on in the book, you point out the fact that even in in those times in the 60s and 70s, uh, even the Weather Bureau had difficulties predicting the actual weather. Um, and it wasn't as sophisticated nowadays as um, it, you know, it wasn't sorry, it wasn't as sophisticated then as it is nowadays. Uh, obviously, due to technology and all these other, you know, scientific advancements and understandings about the climate that we now have, thankfully, that we can bring to bear on these strategies that we would take to manage a fire. So it's one thing I loved about what you were describing about your dad was this idea of. Um, bushfires and understanding their behaviour and understanding when a bushfire season might be bad was um, a bit of art and a bit of science, but it often was a lot of art in those early days. Oh, look, absolutely. And I, I used to sit around, there, there were a couple of old timers um, who would hold court before the bushfire season because everybody listened to Len Rhodes and Bob Kurzweil because they'd lived there for years and years and years and just knew the bush and uh, they'd pick it, and Dad became another one of those people who he, he'd, he'd tell you, he'd say, look, that wattle tree, that's flowering. Um, that's a month early. It's going to be a hot summer. And, you know, look at the casuarina trees. They're going brown already. That means that they've got very shallow roots. Um, there's not a lot of moisture in the near the surface. So things are drying out, mightn't be in drought but we yet, but we could be. So... So he'd see all the indicators and short-term indicators. He'd watch ants swarming and say, ha-ha, it's going to rain. And there was the rain bird. I remember people locally are talking about these birds, coels. They've got this mournful tone. Um, and the, there's not many around these days. Oh, sorry, there weren't many around in those days. But um, if it started to make its call at dusk, Dad would say it's going to rain within the week, and it was spot on. So they called that the rainbird. But um, so it was. So they just knew the bush, and frankly, the weather bureau forecasts back in the sixties and seventies had trouble knowing what would happen the next day. They certainly didn't have satellite data and um, computers to crunch the numbers. And so, and I, I remembered vividly. <clears throat> I'm sorry about this. I'm a bit of a nerd with dates, but it was 16th of December, 1977, uh, the Blue Mountains caught fire. And I'd been off shopping, came home, and my sister said the bushfire brigade just rang. And uh, anyway, cut a long story short, a, few, a couple of hours later, I was battling blazing houses on a ridge top in the Blue Mountains, but they never saw the weather system coming. You know, today... Um, they'd have Doppler radar, all sorts of things, satellite images that wouldn't get past them. But back in those days, it was hit and miss. So you really listened to the old timers and that was the art and they were pretty spot on. Yeah. Well, I love that you point out dates because what is very striking in this book is that 
um, you have a great memory or that's what it uh, appears as such because these descriptions of your experiences over the years from your very early ages, you know, at 12 and 13 years, um, battling different bushfires and your observations on the ground in these areas are so vivid. And when you're reading it, you feel like you're there and, and certainly, um, I guess I was really struck with just how well you do know these areas and clearly that must come from a sense of connection to it is knowing it, I guess, like the back of your hand. So I wondered when you were writing this book as well and you were dipping into these much um, like older memories from the 70s, how you managed to tap into those experiences and to write them so clearly and um, with such immediacy. Yeah, look, I, <laughs> it's an interesting thing. But when I look back over my career as a career firefighter, so 39 years with fire and, res- fire and rescue and, and was very much involved in the bushfire side of things there, was commissioner for nearly 14 years. And um, But you, you remember the seminal things that happen um, over the years and particularly where you're in danger. Um, you remember it vividly. And so, you know, I, I recount the story again in 1977, which was a bad year in New South Wales. So um, during my high school certificate exam, I nearly lost my life at a fire um, near Narrabeen Lake and got separated from the crew and got overrun and had to lie down in the middle of a fire trail. But, um, and you, you don't forget things like that. You, you remember it vividly um, and it's uh, sometimes you wish you could forget, frankly. But um, I, I was I kept the fascination that Dad gave me of what's happening with weather patterns, and that's where it started to dawn on me, particularly in the nineties, that something was subtly changing. And it was subtle at first, and then it just became quicker and quicker. And the, the number of changes, the type of weather that we're experiencing, the frequency of the bad weather, the length of the fire seasons, the number of days of very high fire danger and above, it all just it was all just became like an avalanche. It just got worse and worse and worse. But I was able to um, watch that unfold because of that deep interest that mum and dad had given me in the environment and how everything works together and it all went skew if. Yeah. And we will, um, I think, I can't wait to get to that. We're going to um, talk about some of those fires in the 90s because that is clearly a really pivotal moment for you in your understanding of the fires and the way that it evolves and, and how climate change is playing into it. Um, but I did want to ask you one other thing before we jump to that, which was, um, in that those early moments where, and clearly even later on, you still have fought fires beside your dad. Um, you know, he's passed away now, but you, I know over many years have fought side by side or if not side by side, you know, down the road at different houses and in different areas battling the same fires. Um, and you did make this observation about um, this kind of effect called the command presence effect that military scholars refer to about this kind of calm demeanour that a number of really great leaders would have in a crisis Uh, and that you said, in all my years, I never saw Dad get flustered at a fire. And um, 
I really love this quote that you said. Uh, you said, I remember asking him once at a particularly challenging fire how he could stay so calm. He looked at me, shrugged and said, well, I didn't like the bloody thing. No point getting worried. All we can do is try our best and hope that's enough. I mean, <laughs> just such a great philosophy to have. So I wanted to ask about that, you know, what your dad had. Clearly he had that in spades. You know, how does a leader cultivate that command presence and or is that something you're just naturally born with? Uh, look, I think it can be taught, but some people do it more easily than others. And, and you know, frankly, when I was young, um, I'd, <laughs> I'd start to panic a bit and I just remember the hand on the shoulder, Dad, it's all okay, mate. Calm down. It's all okay. We're, we're just going to bunker down. It's going to go over the top of us. We'll be right. Just, and if you go, oh, okay, he knows what's going on. I remember once, I didn't put that in the book, but I said, but how did you know? And he said, I didn't. I thought we were screwed. <laughs> and I said, oh, thanks. But he said, yeah, you can't. Um, he said, if the person in charge starts to panic, it all falls apart and it it will turn to custard. You know, it's, so he said, it's the job of the leader to stay calm because if you start to panic, you can't process information and um, and everyone takes their lead from you. So, and I, I just, aha, uh-huh, right. And one of the things I've learned over the years, you know, going to factory fires, all sorts of incidents that are really unfolding really quickly, including, you know, massive bushfires and, and I've fought fires overseas as well um, in California, places like that, is... Um, yeah, sometimes you just got to fake it, <laughs> but you you must stay calm. There's um, it, it's there's there's really no option um, because as yeah, as I said before, if you, if you panic, that's it. That's all over, and people can lose their lives. So, um, and when I I started studying at uni, I don't know my late thirties, I did a master's of management, and I was fascinated in the leadership subject and all of. Um, theory behind it, but I, I, there wasn't a lot of literature on emergency services, and the closest I could get was military, and that's where these concepts came out about command presence, and yeah, it's uh, <laughs> keeping a level head, and you just must. Yeah, yeah, just don't let on. It's I guess it's similar if you're an actor on stage, you don't want to show that you're really nervous or having a panic moment um you have to fake it and pretend that you're really confident and then everyone thinks you're you know doing really well and don't even know that anything's going wrong um one thing i would love to talk about before uh we get into the current day is to talk about the 90s because you do say that uh up until the mid 1990s fire seasons along the east coast of new south wales had always been fairly predictable and you really um, outline what these uh, old, the good old predictable days, which is a chapter title from your book, is. Um, you know what was the what were the features of these good old predictable days? What was so predictable about it? And um, obviously, how did that guide bushfire management pre uh, mid nineteen nineties? Yes. Well, well, look, focusing on Sydney and the Blue Mountains, which was where. You know, I was based in Sydney. I fought fires throughout the state, but um, the the bad bushfire seasons happened about a decade apart. So, 
uh, you look at the Blue Mountains, there were fires in 1944, 1957, 68, 77, uh, 94. Um, so they were pretty much 10, 13 years apart. Um, same in Sydney. When Blue Mountains had a bad season, Sydney would have a bad season. That meant that the weather patterns were producing hot, dry, windy weather with total fire bans what we called extreme fire danger in those days, which is now three subdivisions or two, severe and extreme, and then you have the new one off the scale, catastrophic. Um, we didn't, we very rarely got, or never really got catastrophic in this part of the world um, back in those days. Um, from the mid-90s, we, we you'd have um, fairly bad seasons. I recount one of the fires in um, 1990, in December 1990, and we'd, you know, they're just a day here, day there. But 1994 really hit with a vengeance. January 1994, the whole state was on fire. It just happened suddenly um, with no real build-up, and I describe in the book why we'd let our guard down. We'd had rain in November. That normally meant, yep, the fire season will go from north to south, South Coast, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, then we're off the hook, but we might be called to help them down south. And it just didn't happen that way. And it just got very dry very quickly and then hot, windy weather set in for days on end, and that was unusual. Um, So we thought after that, okay, they're the worst fires New South Wales has ever had in terms of property loss and... Um, we'll lick our wounds, it'll be another decade. But no, 1997, Sydney was on fire again. So we thought, okay, we've got a while to prepare. Then 2001, Christmas 2001, we're back in the fires. 2002, 2003, Canberra, you know, nearly 500 homes and the first recorded fire tornado, uh, 200 kilometre per hour winds, fires moving at 20 kilometres per hour, never before recorded worldwide rates of speed like that. So things, as I said before, it just, it didn't change slowly. It just all of a sudden, it was different and the weather patterns were different. This was all driven by changed weather patterns and weather patterns over a long period of time, uh, that's climate. So the climate was changing around us and changing all the rules. Mm. And I remember, you know, and we've heard this being discussed as well, but I remember hearing about um, the idea that the bushfire season is getting longer and therefore there's overlap in terms of which states are affected and at what point. And you certainly highlight that in the book, which is to say that the fire weather would start each year in Queensland, sometimes as early as mid-August, and then shift progressively south down towards Victoria and Tasmania as summer approached, meaning that there was usually plenty of warning that things might get interesting. So um, obviously it followed that kind of pattern, uh, but clearly the the fire seasons have been extending. And I wondered in your opinion and your assessment, when did you notice that the fire seasons had started to, um, you know, happen earlier and that we were seeing these kind of um, – fire activity that then gradually built up to, I guess, that fever pitch towards the end of the year in the summer? Look, it was probably um, towards the end of the first decade of the 2000s. Just subtle, you'd you'd get very hot days happening in September and nothing too bad, but it was 
enough to be quite unusual, and August was much warmer. So I, I tell the story in the book how we used to go camping a lot. We'd go Queen's birthday weekend in June. We'd go away at Easter, and we'd always get drowned. You know, and everyone would say, for Mullins, it's going camping, it's going to rain. And <laughs> so um, it was a good indicator of us taking off with all our tents and everything. But it suddenly, over the years, it stopped raining when we were going away camping. And what this was was a long-term trend of a reduction in winter rainfall. And in southeast Australia, it's at least a 12% reduction. And over in Western Australia, 20% reduction. Southwestern, you know, Margaret River area. Um, and so it's dried out the forests and just... It's 1.4 degrees warming since 1910 on average, but what that means is day and night it's slightly warmer, so there's more evaporation, so the bush is getting drier. And then the dial just started to shift, and particularly the big um, wake-up call was 2013 when the Blue Mountains went up again, um, yet again, it had gone in 2006 and just... Uh, what's that, seven years later, another another major fire. Um, so it, it, we, we had hot, dry weather in August. We were getting big fires in August. And then in September, and we had days of um, 35 degrees, 30, 35 degrees in September that just dried everything out incredibly. And then in early October, we had the worst property losses ever recorded in New South Wales. Um, with 225 homes lost. And we'd never had major property loss in New South Wales prior to the second half of November. And we'd never had major property loss in New South Wales without the amplifying effect of an El Nino event, which makes it a few degrees warmer and a lot drier. So that was the big wake-up. That was, wow, this is really different. And at the same time, Tasmania was burning, hundreds of homes lost there. Um, they had their first ever recorded catastrophic fire danger. Now, that was a new danger rating that came in after Black Saturday 2009. It's off the scale, over of 1 to 100 of fire danger ratings. Um, but even going back, looking at whether they had in 1967 when nearly 2,000 homes were lost, 62 people 62 or 67 people, 62, I think, lost their lives in Hobart. Um, it was way off the scale of anything they'd had in Tasmania. And the story up in Queensland was they weren't... Their natural hazard that they were worried about was cyclones, not bushfires. Bushfires were just an incidental hazard. They had occasionally in southeast Queensland. They weren't too bad, but they were spreading into the subtropics um, which was getting drier and the seasons were getting longer. So big shifts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's shocking because you do say that uh, even rainforests, these kind of temperate and humid type of environments were burning uh, in Tasmania and in Queensland, places that would not normally burn alpine regions in Tasmania. So, you know, that would certainly ring alarm bells for any person familiar with the environment there. And you do, you know, highlight just how much things have escalated in Tasmania as well, which I've got to say when I read it was quite staggering 
Um, it's often, you know, I think Tasmania gets forgotten about a little bit sometimes from the mainland. So I apologize to Tasmanians if we accidentally don't, you know, focus on you guys as much, but they are essentially our neighbors here in Victoria. And, um, you do point out in the book that Victoria, um, was the state in Australia most affected by bushfires, um, and that we've here been on the front line of increasing bushfire risk, and that you say it's been compared to California and France in terms of the volatility of the environment and regularity of major fires. And obviously, the Black Saturday bushfires really do mark a kind of pivotal moment in Victorian bushfire history as well. And I know you know, pretty much anyone I speak to will know what where they were and what they were doing and um, what was happening on Black Saturday. Um, and obviously some people were really at the front line of the bushfires. And then those in Melbourne uh, remember it quite vividly with the extreme winds, the extreme heat. Uh, you know, it was certainly memorable for all the wrong reasons for pretty much everyone in the state. But you also say that your family were here in Melbourne um, when the Black Saturday bushfires were occurring, obviously, um, further afield, but that, you know, they noticed just how significant and, and severe the weather changes were in terms of the wind and that extreme high 48, 47, 48 degree weather. Uh, yes. And I, and my, my wife and daughter had a trip to Melbourne, shopping trip. <laughs> so they had a, a weekend away. And that Saturday, they, I was travelling to Corowa on the New South Wales-Victorian border for a, a celebration of 100 years of the local fire brigade down there. And um, so I was driving through dust storms and 49-degree oh, heat trying to get to Corowa. But um, Eris and Kate went to Queen Victoria Markets in the morning and they, they just said the gale force winds, they had to close it. Things were flying everywhere. It was just too dangerous. And they said the, the heat radiating, radiating up from the pavement um, their eyes started to sting because the moisture in their eyes dried out. So they they found a cinema. They can't remember what movie it was. They didn't really care. They just wanted to get into air conditioning. But um, that was a that was a frustrating. Uh, I don't think frustrating's a word. It's um, I don't know what the word is. But when there's something major going on and you're you you know the business. Um, I just felt for my colleagues down in Victoria, but there wasn't a lot we could do. But Shane Fitzsimmons and I, so I was Commissioner of Fire and Rescue. He was Commissioner of Rural Fire Service. We were talking constantly. We'd started to move fire trucks towards the border and then um, Russell, the Chief Officer of the CFA, um, Neil Bibby, the CEO, we spoke to them. They said, yes, we need help. We, we haven't got a full picture, but please, you know, send those trucks and people and um but it just you know king lake the fire at king lake 159 people lost their lives this was just um you know that word again unprecedented but it was a pyroconvective storm a fire generated storm um and uh, incredible heat output um satellite images later 88,000 kilowatts per meter of fire front so imagine 44,000 two-kilowatt bar heaters crammed into one metre. Imagine trying to um, stand near that. So there were fires you couldn't fight. And, um, you know, and what I say in the book, and sorry, I know your audience are from Victoria, but 
imagine, so we had 11 times more property loss in New South Wales than ever, ever before. Um, the fires covering, you know, totally unprecedented land area, 23% of eastern broadleaf forest. That includes Gippsland, but um, 5.4 million hectares just in New South Wales, over 7 million hectares in Queensland, millions of hectares in Victoria, South Australia. Um, imagine that sort of increase in intensity in Victoria, where historically the big days are single days where you've got the hot northerly wind and then you get the southwesterly change come through and it just swamps. But imagine day after day, week after week, month after month of fire seasons like that. And the Inspector General of Emergency Management in Victoria, his reports into the effects of climate change, a pretty sobering reading saying we're heading into territory that we don't understand. And the people who say, ah, oh, you know, that's a bit far-fetched, well, just look at California. You know, I've spent a lot of time in California, including in 2019, um, at the Kincaid Fire in Sonoma County, and their fire seasons are at least 75 days longer each year um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, um, there's less snowpack, the whole water cycle has changed, they're almost in constant drought and the fuel loads are unmanageable because forests are dying off. So, you know, this all comes back to climate change. So we've, you know, had a couple of centuries of great prosperity and everything and, you know, I think it's actually silly blaming people in the past saying you should have known. Well, no, they couldn't have. You know, people did flag this, but it's our generation that has to put in the fix. And I I get so frustrated hearing that the nationals, um, they they obviously just don't understand how bad this is. They say, you know, but what's the cost? Well, ask the people who lost their homes and lost loved ones in the bushfires. They'll tell you what it costs when you don't do something about this. Yeah. Well, there are absolutely major costs of inaction uh, which is something that I kept bringing up and I know others did in the last federal election was that Labor kept um, being criticised for what is the cost of your climate action plan. Uh, but really no one was saying, well, what is the cost of inaction if we don't have a plan? Uh, because clearly the costs will be much greater and you do obviously outline the property loss, the financial loss, but obviously the human cost, the natural and ecological costs that we have, there are so many that, you know, it's often really difficult to quantify because, I mean, what? how do you put a price on the types of, you know, nature that burns and may not regenerate to the same degree as it did? Um, and one thing, you know, I did note in recent times, you mentioned California, you know, you know things are getting really serious when firefighters are wrapping sequoia trees with fire blankets, you know, trying to protect them from being burnt in, you know, really severe bushfires in California. I mean, that was something which made headlines, you know, for understandable reasons. But, I mean, it does kind of shock you to think that that's where things have gotten. Well, well precisely. And it, as I said, you know, I've got a lot of friends in California. I've studied at the US Fire Academy. I've worked in Los Angeles City, Los Angeles County, Oakland, San Francisco. Um the, so they're playing catch up. So they're the, it's the most well-resourced 
place on the planet in terms of firefighting resources. They have more firefighters, more fire trucks, more aircraft than you can poke a stick at, and they don't know what to do. Um, so it's because of this hotter, drier weather that's and longer fire seasons, and it's it's just changing. And when I when I was over there in 2019, spoke to a climate scientist. What's his name? Chris. 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 It's in the book. I can't remember his name, but. Um, and he said, look, this is a natural process because the climate's become so much hotter. Um, Mother Nature is using fire to change forests to scrubland, scrubland to grassland, grassland to desert, and it's um, unstoppable. And, you know, if we don't drive down emissions, we're, we're not going to have the forests that we used to have, and if we lose the forests, which are dragging CO2 out of the atmosphere, it will just, that'll be a tipping point and it'll get worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, these costs, um, I, it, it, yeah, it just beggars belief that you have people who we pay in Canberra, they work for us and they don't do their research. They obviously don't do their research. They can't see past an election horizon. And so they think it's about current jobs when no one's going to buy our coal in the next 20, 30 years. They're all moving away from it. So why is this government not transitioning to new industries to find jobs for all these people? You saw what happened in the Latrobe Valley with sudden closures. We need to look after these people and it's the government's job to draw up plans. They say, you know, you can't do it without a plan. We'll do your job then, nationals and liberals who are in power at the moment and if you can't hand it over to someone who can yeah yeah there's well i mean even in recent days we've seen laura tingle you know write about the leadership vacuum and responsibility vacuum in canberra and how it in her mind it is actually unprecedented um to the extent that really leadership on several issues has been just given up and um it's gone missing i mean you do say that uh, you know, they're not doing their research. But I also was quite struck by the fact, and I certainly know this from my own experience, that many really well-informed experts such as yourself and your colleagues and other climate scientists and academics and, and you know, practitioners have all been providing this information and this evidence and even giving plans uh, to politicians, trying to make their job easier uh, to, to make the right decisions for the country. Um, and I know that, you know, people will have these meetings with politicians. It seems like everyone's really on the same page. You get a very positive response and then nothing really happens or you get something totally contrary or opposite happen after the meeting. I mean, this seems to be something that you detail in the book uh, in terms of the ways that you reached out, you and your um, emergency leaders for climate action group, you know, reached out and you were getting these kind of mixed signals, if any signals at all. I looked at, I think the perfect example of that is one of the things that we said early in the piece um, in April, 2019 was uh, the fire agencies need more money for aircraft and what they'd found after the 2016 Tasmanian fires, the Senate inquiry had said, look, uh, because fire seasons are longer in the US, Canada and Australia, they're now overlapping and Canada and the US won't allow 
their large firefighting aircraft to leave the country um, or countries uh, to come and help us because we lease all but one of the large firefighting aircraft in the Northern Hemisphere. So the the Senate inquiry said we need our own um, sovereign firefighting capability. Later, the Royal Commission would make the same recommendation and also be ignored. But the fire chiefs in 2018 put together a detailed business case saying, look, here's the problem, overlapping fire seasons. Um, federal government, you haven't put more money in basically since 2003. So the states and territories, it used to be a dollar for dollar. Now it's about nine to one. Um, please just put in $11 million, which in the scheme of a federal budget is nothing. It's petty cash. They just refused. The Prime Minister refused. Um, so we said, look, they really need this money. We were told no. Um, the Fire Authorities Council, Peak Council, which I used to be the president of for years, the CEO wrote to Minister Littleproud and said, please help us, and got an email back saying, you know, don't frighten the public. It'd be really good if you aligned your messages with us saying it's all fine and you don't need anything. Um, we were ignored until I wrote to the Prime Minister again about the fourth time in September 2019 saying, look, what we warned of is unfolding, really need to see you. We were fobbed off to, on the very day that we did that and the media got onto it and questions were asked in Parliament, all of a sudden we were contacted by Minister Angus Taylor, which was such a coincidence. We'd been ignored for months. Um, but we didn't get a meeting till December the 3rd. We again prosecuted the case for a whole lot of things, but aircraft... And it wasn't until the 12th of December that that 11 million was tipped in, but it was basically too late to get the best aircraft they'd wanted months before. And then on 4th of January, after the South Coast and Gippsland had been decimated, um, the Prime Minister announced $20 million extra for aircraft, noting that he'd only been asked for 10, and a lot of suggestions in the industry that that suggestion was a phone call to the Fire Authorities Council the night before the press conference, not the other way around. Um, so it was just, um, you know, I'm giving them double what they want, but those aircraft never reached Australia or never dropped on a fire because it rained in February. So mm -hmm. this is, again, there's no strategy. It just seems like tactics by media grab. And that, that's worrying. And it's happened with climate action. Say, so, you know, technology, not taxes, carbon capture and storage, which is just fantasy land. No one's been able to make it work, yet the fossil fuel industries are getting billions in subsidies to come up with this fantastic solution that, you know, just doesn't work. Um, so it's our money. So if they'd put those billions of dollars into renewables, uh, we'd have a lot less carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. So it's just breathtaking the the vacuum policy vacuum that we've got in Australia yeah and even more staggering I think is that we had a you know this is colloquially termed the bushfire royal commission after these mad massive catastrophic fires in 2019 2020 and they provided 
really clear recommendations. And I know your group provided detailed submissions, um, which I read and spoke with Craig Lapsley about last November. And you point out in this book that you actually wrote to Minister David Littleproud, who's the Minister for Emergency Management, um, asking ahead of a planned meeting between yourself and him that didn't actually eventuate um, about what the government's response was to the Royal Commission report. And uh, although the, the Prime Minister had told the media that they broadly accepted the 80 recommendations made by the Royal Commission report, in fact, you point out that the government wrote a response saying that it supported just 32 recommendations. It then supported in principle 25 and had noted 23 um, so it is concerning that we're told one thing through the media and then about something quite significant, which is the outcomes and the findings and recommendations from a very thorough process. Um, and then I wonder where we even got to in terms of what the government has actually accepted and acted upon and what your um, your analysis or assessment of their actions since have been. Look, I think they've moved on, Amy. Um mission accomplished, um, call a Royal Commission, then say, I can't talk about that. It's going to be looked at by the Royal Commission. Royal Commission hands down its findings and like all the former ones, um, then shelved because good luck finding out what they've done. Um, when my group said we were going to track 10 of the key recommendations on our website and when they implemented them, um, there was an announcement from the government, well, we're going to put out a a tracker of all 80 recommendations. We thought, great, that's good. Um, hasn't been updated in months and no one. it's not on the Prime Minister and Cabinet website anymore, so we don't know where it is. It's moving to another agency. But um, So, you know, the transparency was there for a short time. There was very little action. There were some key things, good things, the national bushfire recovery arrangements. Um, they're looking at how to use the military in support roles, um, far more efficiently than they have in the past. Another thing we warned them about. But it's, uh, I think they've just moved on to other things. And this is just, again, lack of strategy. Um, and anyone in the military emergency services field knows that strategy is crucial. You have to have an objective and an overarching plan and know where you want to be so that your tactics and actions feed into that. But I, you know, just look at how this government runs things and it um, does just seem to lurch from crisis to crisis and make um, news grabs, good news grabs, and then move on. Yeah. So that's my feeling with the Royal Commission. And the Royal Commission report pleaded with the government not to do what it had done with previous inquiries and just sit on the recommendations, but it, it has. That's what's happened. Uh, there's no, no nothing like the Banking Royal Commission. There's no agency really tracking it. There's no secretariat that's checking on implementation. Um, so it's just sort of seems to have gone into the wilderness and never to be found again. Mm. Yeah, it is certainly is a theme having, you know, read about the numerous commissions and inquiries that we've had across decades into bushfires um, at a state and federal level. Um, you do also point out that if the current inaction continues, fire seasons like the one we had in 2019-2020 are likely to be common by 2040 and the new normal by 2060, and the worst seasons will be worse than 
than anything we can currently imagine. So given, you know, that we perhaps will struggle to imagine something worse than what we've already seen um, and we have been at catastrophic levels, I mean, what what does one say or do uh, when you're feeling, I guess, powerless about things? Because I guess one thing I felt at the time when these bushfires were happening was that this is our moment, you know, this is the point where things will change because it's so undeniable that climate change is causing these events. You um, and your colleagues have come out and I definitely think have shifted the conversation towards that instead of it being uh, more of a matter of opinion or debate, which it clearly is not. It's a fact-based situation. So it felt like we had made some... I guess, uh, public movement. We'd seen major demonstrations about climate change following these bushfires, you know, just endless media coverage about it globally. You know, it did seem to be this kind of tipping point and then the pandemic started and it seems to have, um, and obviously the public generally doesn't have a very long memory. I wonder what do we do to put it back on the agenda apart from these sporadic moments when it pops up like the the summit that's going to be happening in Glasgow about climate. How do we keep this going without just being constantly reactive to the bushfire seasons as they occur? Um, yeah, the, the multi-billion dollar question. And so after the fires, of course, we went into COVID or we went into floods and then we went into COVID. So, of course, the focus has been on saving lives and, you know, my heart goes out to families who've lost loved ones. Um, it's been a terrible journey, but we seem to be coming out the other end. Um, that took the focus off the shock and horror of these fires and we're, we're in a La Nina um, or heading into another La Nina phase, it looks like, so it'll be wet. So it'll be different sort of hazard, probably cyclones and floods and storms this this summer. But there'll be fires, but nothing like Black Summer. It's inevitable that an El Nino event will return, and that will supercharge the next round of fires. Now that what you talked about, 2040 and 2060, that's a scientific study of current emissions trajectory. And it's saying that 2019, which was the hottest, driest year ever recorded in Australia, will be average by 2040, um, which means black summer will be an average bushfire season and there'll be something even worse happen occasionally. And by 2060, it will be exceptionally cool. So, And they're talking about heat waves heading t- towards 60 degrees. So who knows what bushfires look like there? But we had a glimpse of that in on um, New Year's Eve 2019, early January 2020, pyroconvective storms, so fire-generated storms, used to be extremely rare. There were 60 between 1978 and 2018 Australia-wide. Um, we had, I think the latest tally is 35 in one fire season in that just, you know, there were about 15 in Gippsland alone. Now, this is... When I say supercharged, these are extremely hot fires that push the convection column 10, 15 kilometres up into the stratosphere, link with the upper atmosphere and bring very strong winds and very dry dry air down to the ground. And you just get explosive fire behaviour, uh, winds from every direction. Things like happened in Canberra in 2003, 200 kilometre per hour winds, 20 kilometre per hour fire fronts through forest, 
trees snapping off white toothpicks. That they're getting more of that in Europe, in California, Canada, Australia. So fires will get worse. Um, we, we we've got to remember all this and say no. And in my case, you know, I say in the book, I've got two beautiful grandsons, and I want them to have a livable future. Um, so I want Australia to be a prosperous country. I want our government to move us away from polluting industries that, and trying to sell stuff like coal that the world's not going to be buying for much longer. Um, to you know, I want those families who rely on coal mining and export for their um, their livelihoods to have other good jobs they can go to and transition to. Um, I, I want a safer future from natural disasters. So the Royal Commission said very clearly, um, trajectory to 2050 is set because of emissions already in the system. Um, it will get warmer and things will get worse. After that, depends entirely on what we do now, now about emissions. If we do nothing, it'll continue to worsen and the ramifications, you know, we probably can't imagine. If we take drastic action now to reduce emissions, we have a chance of stabilising the temperature by mid-century and then gradually bringing it down. So that's what we must aim at. And look, you know, unfortunately, and I've been criticised for this um, because I've realised it's now a political question. You have a coalition government that can't agree amongst themselves. And, you know, we might get a, oh, how good are we? We've gone net zero by 2050. Yeah, because the states and territories have done all the heavy lifting. The business council agrees. The farmers agree. Everyone agree we should do that. So they'll, they won't actually do anything to get there. They'll just rely on everyone else, but then still do nothing. And we need national policy settings for businesses to invest, to transition. So, you know, I think um, there's a big movement to target certain seats and get independents in who aren't um, handcuffed by major parties. Mm. They can actually say what they think. And, you know, maybe that's something people need to look at. Yeah, and support. I absolutely think that's true too. We need to support those who are speaking the truth about things, especially something so urgent as climate change and obviously these ever-increasing and more severe bushfires and other natural disasters. Uh, Greg, just finally, I really wanted to ask you about something which keeps coming up and I no doubt will come up at every bushfire season moving forward, which is this whole idea about hazard reduction burns and the discussion uh, – in the previous really severe fire season of 2019-2020 of the Black Summer where people were saying, um, and wrongly so, that these fires were driven by arson and that they were driven um, by supposedly left-wing greenies who had somehow managed to prevent hazard reduction burns from occurring to the extent that they should have. Um, you pointed out that these those fires were weather-driven um, and not fuel-driven necessarily. So I wanted to, I guess, just ask about and debunk this kind of misinformation that we do here that can tend to dominate the narrative and get people into some kind of cyclical debate uh, that, that kind of detracts from the real point here, which is climate change. Yeah, look, Amy, and, and it's, so, it's so predictable every fire season. They trot out... Um, these myths. So it's 
the rotten greenies. So haven't allowed, you know, hazard reduction burning. National parks, um, they lock up these areas and, you know, if they let us go and grab firewood or graze our cattle in there, that would reduce the fuel loads and they don't do enough burning. So the facts are, um, A, good luck finding a jurisdiction in Australia where the Greens um, actually write legislation apart from the ACT, they're in coalition there. Um, all regulation and legislation on hazard reduction in Australia was written by Liberal, National or Labor governments um, and balance environmental protection, ecosystems and human scientific assets, um, cultural assets. So they're balanced. Um, the multiple inquiries, New South Wales bushfire inquiry found that fuel levels were on average no different to what they've been for the last 30 years. Um, but they also found that climate change with longer fire seasons, um, the windows for carrying out hazard reduction are reducing. So in times where in the past we would have been burning, um, we're now fighting bushfires. They're getting harder to control. Um, a warming atmosphere holds more moisture. So for each one degree rise in temperature, it holds 7% more moisture. That means downpours um, are far more intense. We're getting more intense storms, more intense downpours. So when it rains, you can't burn. So it's either too wet or too dry and windy. So, But look, hazard reduction is a key thing. We need to be smarter about it. The latest research says focus around communities and assets um, and modify the fuels close in because fires that spot 8 to 12 kilometres or generate storms that start new fires 30 kilometres away with lightning, dry lightning, um, hazard reduction is actually not going to do a lot. But we, we must focus on it. But look, it's just not true that anyone's stopping it happening. Um, the very governments like in New South Wales who, yeah, the nationals, again, had a go at National Parks and Wildlife Service, said, well, you know, they're not doing enough burning. Well, they're the ones who reduced the staff of national parks while increasing the park estate. So, you know, less ranges, more land. Um, hello, you can't do as much. But again, on average, they're doing more burning than they used to. It was definitely a weather-driven event. Arson, uh, that was just a lie. <laughs> so Victorian police, uh, New South Wales police figures, South Australian police figures, there was less arson than normal. There are only about 11 fires out of thousands in New South Wales that were found to be arson and only one um, damaged any property. The vast majority were caused by lightning. So there's just, you know, grazing in national parks. Oh, you know, please. Um, the cows and livestock eat green shoots, not dry eucalypt leaves and twigs and dead grass that fuel bushfires So and shrubs. So... It's been done to death, and Alpine Task Force in 2005 in Victoria said, no, all they do is damage the ecosystems, um, eat things that kangaroos and other natives should be eating, and it's just people wanting to get back land that they never owned and were once able to make money out of. It's got nothing to do with bushfire risk. Yeah. Well, Greg, I'm so glad you've taken us through those points because I know that um, some people may not have heard the rationale and the evidence to refute all of those claims, which are clearly not founded on any true evidence. Um, 
it's been really wonderful to speak with you. And I just thought I'd read out one quote that I hyperbolded on my notes here because I think it sums up things. And I hope people remember this when they're voting at the next election for any party or independent, um, which is hindsight is an in, in, sorry hindsight is an inexact science, but no amount of reflection and deflection changes the fact that the government was warned and history will record that it chose not to act until far too late. And I know that it is easy to forget things. I know for those who have been affected by the bushfires, they wouldn't have forgotten, but it's kind of easier for those who haven't been directly affected to not think about this every day. But it is something we should absolutely have front of mind, certainly when we're making political decisions and choices. So thank you so much, Greg. I hope people do read this book because it is a compelling read. It's highly readable and I've wanted to read it all in one sitting and it's also essential reading because it affects all of our lives and I thank you for standing up and being courageous and putting your voice out there um, alongside your other colleagues on our benefit for our be- for our benefit and on our behalf and also um, in a way protecting and safeguarding democracy by pushing what is the truth and what are facts back out there. Thanks very much Amy it's been great speaking to you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM, 102.7 FM on your dial. My name is Amy Mullins and it's really great to be joined by a wonderful Melbourneian. Her name is Jacqueline Krupe and uh, she has written a book called Garden Like a Nonno and it is a really beautiful uh, illustrated hardback book. It's kind of almost, I think it's double pocket sized, I guess you could say. <laughs> so it's not a full size, but it's like really beautifully produced and something that I think anyone would desperately want to own. And I'm very lucky to have a copy in front of me. Um, so I welcome Jacqueline, who is an author and a bookseller based here in Melbourne, um, to talk about this book, Garden Like a Nonno, The Italian Art of Growing Your Own Food. Hi there, Jacqueline. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a delight to have you on and to talk about a topic that I know so many listening are pretty obsessed with, which is garden and their gardens and, you know, the whole ecosystem of our gardens. Um, And I just loved reading through your book, particularly the way you describe your nonno, which for anyone who isn't aware, you know, that's the Italian word for grandfather or pop um, and nonna is your grandma. Um, So it is really lovely that you have these sage lessons from him and and that you share them thankfully with us but what I really loved and what struck me was your point about them being no frills that these Mm. are that they're not these highly technical you know you said he never bought a ph (laughs) kit to check the soil you know this is about human experience and knowledge from humans who have you know perfected things and practiced and made mistakes and you know, are responding to their own garden situation and and are trying to do things on a small budget. And I think that's something that really appeals to me is to hear that it's not this kind of scary or highly technical exercise to garden like a nonno. No, absolutely. It's it's a state of mind, really. And I guess 
what my nonnos showed is anyone can and should grow some food. Um, it's not technical. It's not hard. You just need to get out there and maybe get your hands a little dirty. Um, and they didn't know, I mean, words like permaculture, they would never have heard that word, um, activated charcoal, biochar. They wouldn't have known any of those things or those words and terms, but they were practicing all of it. They were living it. They were just doing it. That's just how they gardened. Yeah, and and also you say that uh, they grow most of their vegetables from the seeds that they save each season, making their plants basically free. So, you know, this is just kind of you know, salt-of-the-earth type situation where you, you know, might grow some tomatoes and save the tomato seeds, dry them out in the special way that one does and, you know, utilise them for the next year if it was a particularly good crop. I mean, you know, are these the things that, you know, you learned from your nonno, because I know that from my pop, um, he was obsessed with growing tomatoes and mm-hmm. they were so like deliciously sweet that now I understand why a tomato is a fruit and not a vegetable. Yeah, absolutely. I don't realize that when we buy tomatoes from the supermarket or even a grocer, because they don't have that sweetness that I think, you know, a tomato grown by your nonno might have been. So what is that, you know, secret to success? And, you know, is it partially because it is so, um, you know, personalized and, you know, you're not going out and buying seeds, you're, you know, doing a lot of these things yourself. Yeah, I guess with the tomato seed um, idea, they they had two methods for how to save tomato seeds. One was slightly more complicated and involved fermenting the seed a little bit. Um, And I say it's involved because you use a word like fermenting and that does sound like a process, but it's actually still quite easy. But then they had this trick that they did every summer. Both of my nonnos grew a lot of cherry tomatoes. Um, I'm talking, you know, 15 different varieties. And at the end of the season, um, when, you know, they were trying to get them out of the ground and get their autumn crops in, they would often just get a piece of paper towel and just smear the um, cut a cherry tomato in half and just smear it across. And then they would let the paper towel dry. And then they would just plant that in seed raising mix the next August. And that would be their cherry tomatoes. The key thing that they did is they wrote the varieties down on the piece of paper towel, because otherwise it's impossible to know what you're going to grow. But um, that little hack, I do that myself now and it just I mean you can of course you can buy tomato seeds and they're great to swap and um but saving your own I think it does adapt to your your soil conditions and your climate so year on year your plants get stronger um and I guess the key to really sweet tomatoes of course is a lot of sunshine if you have it but also um that tomato hasn't traveled in a truck for five hours it hasn't sat on a shelf for two days you know it's 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 ripe, it's ready to grow, and it's in your mouth. There's nothing more delicious. And it hasn't been sitting in cold storage for potentially months. Exactly, and tomatoes should never go in the fridge. That is, that's a non-nor thing, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's just like me saying I think tomato sauce shouldn't go in the fridge either. But that's a- <laughs> So I'll steer clear of it. Um, but I loved your section on seeds and, you know, you mentioned they're sharing seeds and swapping seeds and um, that there are some seed libraries and yeah. communities really do get together. There's community gardens, which I know are important to people, even in a pandemic. Um, at least you can kind of socially distance in an outdoor garden, you know, safely if you don't have your own 
garden at home, but there are also ways that one can have a garden or engage in gardening like a nonno if you don't have a lot of air um, areas or space, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And you say that there are certain uh, types of things that you can grow that are really um, lend themselves to these smaller spaces. So I wonder what what would we think about when we're trying to adapt our gardening uh, to the space that we're in and how would a nonno actually approach that? Yeah, well, it's. I mean, a lot of my zeos, so not nonnos, but my zeos initially, they live in apartments and they have balconies that are just laden with produce. And the key trick that they use is they they use the vertical space. So they grow things up any vertical space that they have, especially if the sun hits that area. Um, so you can grow all sorts of climbing beans, tromboncino zucchinis, um, those sorts of things, and peas using a trellis. So they make use of all of the space. And and I think the great thing about balcony or small space gardening is growing your own herbs. Um, it's always good. It's, it's starting small, but you think about the money you spend if you buy herbs and all the plastic that they come in. Um, that's something that you can circumvent in, in a very small space relatively easily and still save the seed from it yourself and keep it going. And then things like thyme and rosemary you'll have forever. Yeah, well, herbs are, or what I've discovered for my very um, amateur gardening is that they're quite easy in general, uh, <laughs> except, except the, um, what is it, coriander, which mm. can be a bit problematic. But I did notice that, you know, things like uh, parsley and chives and, um, you know, all those kind of basil, the really common ones, seem to be very popular amongst pollinators and they draw them into your garden. So, you know, when you're wanting your tomatoes to be pollinated, you need a very special kind of bees to head over there and um, <laughs> pollen around, or you can hand pollinate them. But, you know, it seems like that's also quite beneficial is to have this varied um, planting so that you have a kind of active ecosystem that supports itself. Absolutely. I think planting for pollinators, and that can just be, you know, letting some carrots go to seed um, and go to flower and then seed. Obviously, you're going to get the seed, but the pollinators are going to get the flowers. Um, I always let a few artichokes, um, those big um, purple flowers. I always leave a few for the for the bees because um, as much as I love to eat artichokes, I do, I do love bees as well and it's their favourite thing and you just watch them having such a great time in those huge artichoke flowers. Um, it's a joy. Something, uh, going back to the seed conversation a little bit earlier, the other thing about seeds and gardeners is gardeners are the most generous people you'll ever meet. If you, ever, if you know anyone who enjoys gardening and especially productive gardening, which is the main kind of gardening I do, all you need to do is mention that you're thinking about starting a herd herb garden and you'll walk away with some packets of seeds and some cuttings and you know some envelopes of saved seed it's it's it, it's not that hard to get started especially if you know someone who is a gardener yeah and I'm sure even if you don't know someone directly there's I've, I've noticed there's a huge amount of Facebook groups for mm. example where you know people share tips about organic gardening or you know whatever approach that they take and people offering those cuttings as you say of like you know I want to grow this does anyone have some it is a really lovely reciprocal community to be part of um, and yeah I guess one thing I wanted to bring us back to which I think uh, perhaps when you're starting out with gardening, you may not consider, but you certainly realise its vitality 
you know, in into the season, which is soil health. And also the value of composting and and that worm, um, you know, juice that you, you know, pull out of the compost bin. I mean, it actually just is like magic. It kind of puts it, you know, your um, vegetables just kind of suddenly flourish overnight almost when you put that into your soil. You've got a whole range of tips here from your nonno um, about soil health and you talk about it as being a really critical component. So I wonder if you could share with us what you think is so crucial for, for anyone listening to know. Yeah, absolutely. I think I see soil health and improving the health of your soil as a lifelong project. And every growing season, it's a matter of adding some organic material to it um, to feed those plants that you want to grow. Um, and so manure is sort of the number one thing I'm always adding to my soil. I have chickens, so I have a sort of free supply of it. But um, I also have friends who have small hobby farms and I will go down there and collect bags of cow manure manure or llama poo is great too. Um, so yeah, manure is great. Compost is great. And the, and the amazing thing about compost is that you can, within the confines of your own um, living space or gardening space, you can create your own compost using what is otherwise waste. So you're turning, you know, all the nutrients that are in your kitchen scraps, you're turning into something that you can immediately use in your garden. So you're dealing with something that's waste and you're making it something that's really useful um so it's just it's a win 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 situation and then some worm castings and the worm juices you say they're both incredible um well the, the um, castings are a great soil conditioner and the juice is a great fertilizer um, in terms of fertilizer I also like to use a bit of blood and bone both my non-nos were very big on blood and bone um, but I also make my own fertilizers out of I make some out of weeds that I gather um from my garden and I soak them in water and the, the nutrients from the weeds le leaches out into the water and then I use that to water my um, my veggie plants. And I also make a seaweed fertiliser and the recipe for both of those um, is in the book. They're just, you know, you go for a little walk along the beach when you can, are allowed to go that far, um, and pick a little bit of seaweed. And, I you know, one 20-litre bucket is enough for me, my garden for the year. Um and it's incredible. You can almost see the, you know, your plants grow as you water them with this fertilizer. It's it's incredible. Well, that's excellent, and also great for those listening who already live on the coast. You True. Can do down now. <laughs> uh, it'll your time will come very soon. Um, so I and I also loved uh, the opening part of the book because you have a nice quiz, and everyone loves a quiz, <laughs> don't we? Um, which is how much non-no potential do you have? Um, and I was kind of shocked to see that I do. I like I was <laughs> non-no categories, but I still feel like I honestly know nothing. <laughs> I, I'm really glad to have this book because you've given me so many things that I just had no idea about. Um, and one thing I know that every gardener will come up against, whether they've just started or are, you know, absolute veterans, is this um, well a whole range of pests and I know that um, your nonna you know says that chickens are a great thing and that um, you know even your ecosystem a lot of it will actually take care of itself so it often doesn't need intervention so I wonder if you could share with us you know your nonna and your philosophy on managing pests particularly when we have these more humid wet seasons that really affect things like tomatoes. 
Yeah, so Nono, I mean, both of my Nono spent so much time in their garden and they worked very hard in their gardens, but they also spent a lot of time just sort of leaning on a shovel, looking at them. And they really taught me the art of observation and they noticed pests and disease problems fairly early. And the first thing they always did was nothing. They just observed. Um, so aphids, which both of my nonnos detested aphids, but they would just wait and see if, you know, the ladybirds might come in and take care of it for them or if a parasitic wasp might come in. And then they would that would fascinate them and they would sort of watch these wasps doing all these things and they'd point that out to me. Um, and then they would walk away. And then if, if 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 the problem wasn't always completely dealt with, they always did try to intervene um, as minimally as possible to start with. And that's certainly my approach. You know, can can dishwashing detergent and some warm water, soapy water, deal with this pest before I, you know, have to do anything more extreme? And I think we are seeing a lot of different pests um, and diseases. I'm I'm in inner Melbourne and you know, we'll be seeing more fruit flies things that we haven't had to deal with here before and I think it's a it's a community effort to sort of monitor and try to control them as much as we can and I guess the thing with pests and diseases especially when you're starting is if you don't know what it is um, that's it's really not a problem there's plenty of books that you can turn to um, you know what garden pest or disease is that is sort of a classic gardening book but you can also take photos of what's going on um, and show your local nursery and talk to other gardeners and everyone will have a way of dealing with things because we've all dealt with them before and you know this year seems to be a particularly good year for black aphids and they attack the allium plants so spring onions garlic chives garlic chives and um but they are easy to deal with once you know what you're dealing with. Yeah. Well, I'm actually growing some onions at the moment and um, I've never grown them before. So I'm really excited to see what on earth happens <laughs> and even to figure out when to pull them out. Um, but that's also the exciting part about, you know, gardening is trying out totally new things you've never grown before. Um, broccoli is another example. I've never grown that before and it seems to be like growing like a weed at the moment yeah I mean broccoli is literally a weed the wild brassica is everywhere well there you go um <laughs> I wondered when you know you clearly are so engaged in this space not just because you've written books about it but no doubt you know this is part of your life and your family and you know growing up um in the in an Italian culture has a really rich heritage of gardening and food and um it's just something that I know inspires many people, even if they're not Italian. Um, and I, yeah, I really have great memories of meeting a nonno who was not clearly mine, um, but he was just so beautiful in his passion and excitement for his garden. And he would just describe it in this beautiful, um, yeah, vibrancy and, you know, and want to give you all his tomatoes. And, <laughs> you know, there's just this really lovely um, thing about, I guess, the cultural aspects of gardening. So I wondered with your family and, and how you were growing up, you know, how has that translated to you today in the way that you garden? And, you know, are you filled with the same kind of passion that your nonno and your nonna have for food? And, you know, I guess, yeah, I just wanted your reflections on that. Yeah, I think absolutely. I um, So my nonna's taught me a lot more about cooking and preserving the produce that nonno grew. Um, but nonno's, both of my nonna's were just, it goes back to that generosity of gardeners. Um, they were so generous. I couldn't 
visit them without leaving with an armful of vegetables um, and sorgo and anything else that they could, you know, give to me. And that's certainly something that I want to share with other people and I want to um, hopefully sort of show how easy and cheaply you can garden. Um, it, it can be a very frugal exercise and um, just how rewarding it is to grow a little bit of your own food. And you'll find this with your onions and your broccoli, like when you're harvesting them and eating them, um, you, you know, when you really literally know exactly where your food has come from, I think it just makes you really aware of, um, food in general and food process systems and all of that. And, I mean, some growing your own leafy greens, you just, you cannot get fresher leafy greens than ones you grow yourself. Um, I think it's just all so rewarding. And this book actually came about because at the start of Melbourne's, um, or the start of all, the very first lockdown, a lot of my friends started, you know, wanted to garden and wanted to start growing their own food and knew they would be home for a while. And so I was getting all these messages asking for advice and tips. And I started making these little videos on my Instagram to sort of answer the questions and show how I did things. And then as it sort of kept going and people would, you know, things were getting harder to get, you know, a lot of the seed companies and nurseries um, had huge backlogs and so suddenly you couldn't get things. And it really reminded me how my nonnos taught me that even when you think you have nothing, you have everything at your disposal. And that comes back to things like the weed fertilizer. You know, you, you have weeds, you can make fertilizer. Um, and they had some other very non-traditional fertilizing methods, which are all in the book. <laughs> yes, they are very different. Um, there's some, I think there's urination even in there. Yeah, that's the big one. It's something you always have free and readily available. <laughs> Yeah. And well, there are so many different tips in here, which I'm not going to give the game away, but there's a great section on tomatoes and I've, yeah, I'm going to implement some of these things here for myself. Um, and there's also uh, a green tomato preserve recipe from your nonna, which is yes. one because we all have all those like green tomatoes at the end and you've got no idea what to do, which is just really great. And I also loved your section on classic nonno sayings because <laughs> uh, it just like, you know, adds that lovely um, colour to gardening and gives you an idea of, you know, what it would be like to sit out there on a Sunday with your nonno and, you know, chat about gardening um, so yeah, maybe I'll let you, do you want to say any of your favorite sayings? Cause you'll be better at it than I will. <laughs> well, I guess it's, nonnos have a lot of, um, rules at the dinner table. So cuando si mangia non si parla is a big one, which is don't talk while you're eating, um, with your mouth open actually. Um, both of my nonnos, if you're annoying them, um, they would say non mi rompere le palle, which, um, <laughs> very politely translates to don't bust my chops, like give me a break. Um, but they're also always telling us to slow down and piano piano, um, especially if we're running around. Kids running around makes can make nonnos very nervous. But, um, yeah, they had all sorts of wonderful sayings and expressions and so different to my nonnas who just so overtly showed love constantly. My nonnas were a bit more di uh, distant but you know, they showed love in, in other ways and they certainly passed on their knowledge really readily. Yeah. 
And that's what I think is um, really lovely is that we have this little compendium, which is not so little. It's just like it's small in kind of size but very long. So you get a lot out of this. And also the illustrations, um, hats off to your illustrator, who is just clearly so very talented as well and I think just adds so much to the to the book and the experience of leafing through it. Absolutely. That's Felicita Sala. She's a children's book illustrator typically, but she agreed to do um, both of my books actually. And um, yeah, I adore her. She just captures Italian nonnas and nonnos so well. Yeah, oh, it's really great. I hope people do pick it up. Um, just so you know, it's called Garden Like a Nonno, The Italian Art of Growing Your Own Food. Um, it's out through Affirm Press. And I think, you know, if we're talking about great gift ideas, this would be one of those because it's highly practical and uh, it can be implemented now, which now is a, a time to be planting and up to, you know, the next few months. So, um, yeah, I just hope that anyone who is thinking about gardening might, um, you know, jump in and realise that it's not so scary just as your nonno says and shows. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope everyone um, just has a happy spring gardening and, yeah, grow some food. And follow Jacqueline on Instagram uh, to see her wonderful videos as well from um, before. I'm guessing it would have been in 2020. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Thanks so much, Jacqueline, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.